The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Who among you would say to your slave, who has just come in from plowing or tending sheep in the field, come here at once and take your place at the table? Would you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me? Put on your apron and serve me while I eat and drink. Later you may eat and drink. Do you thank the slave for doing what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were ordered to do, say, we are worthless slaves. We have done only what we ought to have done. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you. So as most all of you know, this is my first Sunday to preach at Trinity. And I was overjoyed when Tony and Becky asked me to step up to the pulpit so soon after arriving. And then I read our texts for today. (laughs) And I was not quite so overjoyed. What a few weeks it has been in the lectionary, the parable of the dishonest manager Concluding with that reminder that we cannot serve God and wealth. That's a favorite topic. Or how about the story of the poor man Lazarus, which reminds us not only of the constant challenge of economic injustice and disparity, but the peril it poses for our very souls. Again, another favorite theme. But this week... We come to a brief pericope on slavery, just to round out the lot. Yahtzee! Some of you may be familiar. There's this website called textweek.org that provides the lectionary readings for each uh, week and event in the liturgical year in an easy-to-read format. And so for each week, they select a piece of art that captures the theme of the text or season. This week, the site featured a statue of an angel, and she's slumped over a pillar, covering her face with her wings up in the air, kind of like this. And I saw that photo and I thought, yes, that's sort of what it feels like to preach on these texts. In today's lesson from Luke, Jesus seems to imply that we should be obedient slaves. Texts like this may make us squirm. Certainly made me squirm a bit. And to be sure, some caution is well warranted. Throughout history, passages like this have been used to support the argument that Christianity is compatible with and indeed proposes to support slavery. Particularly in North America in the past 400 years, these insidious arguments have been presented in church and in public to defend racism, degradation, oppression, to say nothing of the systematic spiritual, emotional, 
and all too physical violence. Even 150 years after slavery was ruled illegal in the United States, we still inherit its evils in the form of pervasive racism, both institutionalized and personal, as well as a culturally divided country. The Bible and our communities were warped, mutated by slavery. They sprouted strange fruit. Billie Holiday, the jazz singer, who is perhaps best remembered for her love songs, lent her voice to a haunting song that bore this title, Strange Fruit. In her bittersweet and somber tones, she sings, Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. Indeed, as African-American theologian James Cone reminds us in his immensely powerful book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, the thousands who perished during the lynching era after slavery became re-crucified Christs hanging on their tree in the same way that Christ hung from his. And we cannot deny that almost every person who strung up men and women of color, almost every person who cheered and went to the picnic afterward, almost every person who stood by and did nothing were white church-going, Bible-reading Christians. Is it putting too fine a point on it if I also add, like most of us here? Indeed, my friends, we should not approach the topic of slavery and the Bible without care. Not just because it makes us feel squirmy, but because the pain that it points to is all too real. Most of us have inherited a privilege, a preferred skin color, wealth, safer neighborhoods, opportunities for education and employment from structures that inflicted that very pain. We may not want to think about it, yet there it is. However, the pain of slavery isn't only located in American history or even in our present social and racial injustices. The simple fact is that the pain of slavery hasn't stopped. The pain of slavery is literally real around the globe today. In Kevin Bale's book, Disposable People, New Slavery in the Global Economy, he calculates that At a conservative estimate, there are 27 million people living and working in literal slavery across the globe today. This means that numerically, there are more slaves today than at any other time in history. Again, this is 27 million people living in literal slavery, removed from their homes, their communities, and forced to work against their will. 
Population explosions in many countries of the 20th century have far outstripped just economic growth, creating conditions in which human life and labor as market commodities are nearly worthless. And the market has responded. We live in a buyer's market in human commodities. Destitute people unable to find work, reduced global transportation costs, weak or corrupt governments unable to protect their citizens, and immoral business practices have combined to form a perfect storm of human degradation. To give you a sense of this crisis, consider this economic figure. An average slave in the American South in 1850 cost the equivalent of $40,000 in today's money. Today, a slave costs an average of $90. Or, rather than calculate the cost in money, we can calculate the cost in literal human lives. Recently, the Guardian newspaper of Britain published a report on a specific abuse of globalized wage slavery, the 2020 World Cup will be held in Doha, Qatar, and the events require the building of an infrastructure, stadiums and complexes, and thousands of Nepalese migrant laborers have been recruited for the task. However, they're being currently kept in such poor conditions that over this past summer in the burning heat of Qatar, they were averaging one fatality per day. At this rate, it's estimated that 4,000 people will die to finish this project. This may sound like a figure befitting the construction of the Egyptian pyramids in 2500 BC, rather than a soccer stadium in 2013 AD. We may not want to think about it, yet there it is. Slavery, in all of its dehumanizing brutality, is still very real. As privileged American consumers in the global economy, our indirect benefit from slavery, past and present, raises potent questions about our Christian duty. We should comment carefully on these meanings of slavery. Our discomfort with today's theme in the gospel is well warranted. So how do we engage this lesson sensitively in light of our context? Can this passage still hold meaning for us, a meaning that does not dull our awareness of the realities of slavery in our very own day? Or might a helpful and accurate interpretation of this passage simply be impossible? Or perhaps worse, might trivialize the plight of those suffering under the yoke of slavery by reducing this text to a simple metaphor and in the process take a pass on addressing the very real facts of slavery. We may not want to think about it, yet there it is. And because it is there in the gospel, we are invited by God to try to wrestle with it. So praying for God's grace, I invite you to try to understand Jesus' lesson with me. In my own reading of this gospel, I was struck by the connection between the first theme 
and the second. These passages come toward the end of a series of pericopes in Luke, and it is a constant challenge to all interpreters to figure out whether or not one pericope is supposed to be read in light of the previous one. So our lectionary selection for today has actually combined two of these separate pericopes that are related, though it may be difficult to see. Our gospel begins with a rather odd demand from the disciples. Increase our faith. I struggle to even understand what that means. When I think of faith, I think of a calm assurance that develops over time an arising sense of comfort and trust. Faith is a bond that develops with God long over years and years and years. It's how God connects us, connects us to each other. So it struck me as odd that the disciples would ask for faith right now, as though Jesus had a a pot of soup and he was going to ladle it out for them. But faith, in the Greek here is pistine, in the context of the New Testament, and especially in Luke, is also a kind of a power, a kind of a capability. In other passages in Luke, uh, Jesus' healing ministry, we hear the refrain from Jesus, your faith has saved you. The faith that heals isn't as passive as we might think in our modern usage. It's much more active. Likewise, when Peter walks on water to join Jesus and he begins to sink, Jesus asks, where is your faith? And even in today's reading from 2 Timothy, Paul mentions Timothy received the gift of faith from his grandmother and his mother, Eunice and Lois. So faith is this power that seems to be intimately related with doing great things. And even right here in the very passage, we see that the faith the size of a mustard seed is greater than that of a mulberry tree. But it is greater by way of spoken authority. The mustard seed of faith can tell the mulberry tree to throw itself in the sea, and the mulberry obeys. So the disciples, when they are asking for faith, are asking for authority for the power to command and to change the world. And it is in this specific context that the next passage follows, in which Jesus speaks of slavery. The reference to slavery seems to work in two ways. The first is pretty simple. Jesus is putting the disciples in their place. Faith, as power, cannot be ladled out like mystical soup. And by asking for power, they demonstrate that they think themselves to be worthy. Yet, ironically, in asking for an increase in power, they demonstrate pretty clearly that they are not worthy. Jesus must remind them again that they are servants, first and foremost, and they must get their priority right. God is the master. It is important not to take a pass on Jesus being a little sharp at times, and this is one of them. Here, a little bit of historical context from antiquity might be helpful. In ancient Greek and Roman slavery, the entirety of a slave's life, work, and status were set by the master. 
Writing in 350 B.C., Aristotle's politics helpfully frames this idea when he says, the slave is an animate tool of the master. Slavery in antiquity is inseparable from the notion of the master. The one who sets the work gives status and provides for the slave's well-being. In return, the slave simply does the master's will, and his or own, her own will had no social standing. This is even implied when Jesus says, Do you thank a slave for doing what was commanded? Such a statement shows us that the role of the slave is submission. And in a culture in which the value of individual autonomy was seldom articulated, the relationship of the slave and master was the most common social bond, except for familial relationships. So Jesus is drawing upon this cultural background and reminding the disciples to remember who's the boss. He essentially says, you want the power of faith? Remember your place. God is the master. You are the slave. However, this reference to slavery also functions in another way, a second way. So let's look at that line that I just said, and let's change the emphasis a little bit and ask the question a little more nicely. Do you want the power of faith? Well, then, remember your place. God is the master, and you are the slave. In keeping with Jesus' subversive double meanings found throughout the Gospels, this passage functions not just as a rebuke, but also as an offer, an invitation, a map showing us the way. If we do indeed want the power of faith, we can recall that the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. All who exalt themselves shall be humbled, and all who humble themselves shall be exalted. Jesus' reference to slavery here is best read as a personal invitation to values that run contrary to expectation. We serve a master who came to serve. And further define expectations. Our master does not speak in booming decrees but in soft whispers that can only be heard in our stillest moments. Our master seldom lays out the whole plan, but usually provides the parts one at a time and lets us figure out the puzzle. Our master came not to conquer, but to love and die and give new life. So if you want the power of faith, and it is real power, then you will find that power by remembering your place. God is the master, and you are his living and breathing tool. The more you submit, the more wieldy you are. The more you renounce and give away, the lighter you are in God's hands. I don't know about you, but when I think about those 27 million people who live in slavery in our world, when I think about the, the legacy of slavery in America, racism and cultural brokenness, I feel weak. I feel overwhelmed. I feel angry. 
for all the right reasons, I want to stand up and say, Lord, increase my faith. Give me the power to fix this. Just like the disciples. It's just so easy to think that I know it all. But this is not the way that God will raise us up. God gives the power of faith to those who hand their lives to God. Those who hold God's will above their own. Those who would become slaves, tools in God's own hands. When we try to tackle it alone, according to what we think must be done, we struggle and our faith falters. If we're going to do the work God has given us to do, we must submit and wait for orders. They will probably be whispered, but they will still be orders. And the more we submit to those orders, the more we leave behind, the clearer our work will become, the more we will truly serve the Lord as God's instruments of change. This was a lesson that St. Francis of, of Assisi knew well. And this past Friday was his feast day. And I was struck by just that first line of his prayer. Do you know the, the prayer of St. Francis? Will you pray it with me? Just that first line. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. May that be our prayer today and every day. Amen.